And welcome everybody to another episode of Smart Money Circle. My name is Adam Sarhan. With me today is Dale Brown, Chairman of the Board at Salem Investment Counselors with approximately 1.7 billion in AUM. Dale, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. I'm delighted to be here. So Dale, I always like to begin. Can you tell us your story and how you got involved in the business? Um, well, yes, I can. Uh, I assume you're talking about my personal story. Yes, please. <laughs> Um, it's an interesting story and it goes back a long, long ways. I grew up in a family business. My father put me to work at age 11. Okay. It was an automobile business. I was pumping gas. Okay. I joke for years that uh, if all of my education failed me, I could paint cars for a living. And um, as it turned out, they even changed the technology on painting cars, so I'm not sure I could do that anymore. But as part of that business, and I can even give you the date that put me on the course to where I, I am today. Uh, it was April 15, 1970. My dad called me into his bedroom to tell me that he'd been to see the company's accountant, and the accountant had told him the business was essentially broke. Oh, wow. And he said, son, I know I've known that I get to the end of the month and there's not enough money to pay the bills. Uh, but he tells me if we don't change something, um, it's, it's just not going to get any better. And I need your help trying to figure out what's going on. I was 17 years old. Wow. I've never had any accounting. Uh, and <clears throat> so... I took this project he put at my feet. Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, I developed an inventory accounting system oh, wow. to tell us how much we had in cars that he was selling. And the bottom line was he thought he had, and remember this was a long, long time ago. This was over 50 years ago. Um, he thought he had $3 per man hour in the cars that we were preparing for sale and selling. And the fact was we had six. Wow. And that's what my inventory accounting method revealed to us. Well, we got the business back on track. We decided we were going to have to do more retailing than wholesaling. So we got the business on track. A few years later, a couple of three years later, I'm in business school in Chapel Hill jobs are tight. You may not be old enough to remember the 73-74 recession, but it was a doozy. Yep. It was a big one. And you were hearing stories of students getting out of business school, no jobs. Right. So I asked the business school professor, what can you get a job doing coming out of business school today? Good question. And he said, well, if you can do accounting, Oh, wow. The big eight firms are still hiring, at least for now. Mm -hmm. Well, getting out of job, getting out of college without a job was not an option for me. Right. So I said, well, I guess I can do accounting. Well, I remember my first accounting course, BA 101, mm -hmm. and I come out of the first exam and I think, I haven't done anything that easy since I was in junior high school. Wow. You mean people really get paid good money to do stuff like this? Right. And what I didn't realize, it took a long time for me to put it together. But I was, I had essentially been doing that. 
in my father's business. And as I developed his system, I realized there were some expenses that reoccurred uh, regardless of level of activity and some expenses that were di directly related to the level of activity, fixed and variable right. costs. Right. Accounting taught me the terminology, but I had already figured out the practicality of it. Right. Well, after undergrad school, uh, Arthur Anderson uh, encouraged me to go to law school because I wanted direct entry into tax, not audit. And Anderson told me that there will be a job waiting for you in Greensboro, North Carolina, after you finish law school. You don't have to interview anyone else. We'll hire you. And so I spent three years in law school thinking I would go into um, public accounting with Anderson. Well, when the day came, I bumped into a gentleman named Tom Hudson, who was the partner in charge of the Deloitte Haskins and Sells Greensboro office. He later was with KKR out of New York. Wow. Uh, and Tom convinced me that my future was with Deloitte Haskins and Sells. And so I joined Deloitte in 79. And in 1981, I participated in hiring a young gentleman named David Ray. Wow. Who happens to be the president. I was about to say, wow, yeah. Today. <laughs> right. And so David and I worked together for a while at uh, Deloitte. And in 84, 85, David had the opportunity to leave Deloitte and join Salem. Mm -hmm. And he did. Mm -hmm. um, and then about three or four years later, I guess it was 88, he asked me would I consider changing careers and joining him at Salem, where we would be together for a much longer period of time. Wow. And after a great deal of deliberation, um, I made the decision to do that. And Adam, it was probably the most fortuitous decision of my life. And I'm not referring to it economically. I mean, long ago, I gave up measuring success by economics. And I think people who do probably are missing a great part of life. They're short-sighted. But, right. but I, I've been with Salem now for 30-some years, what, 32, 33 years. And I have enjoyed every minute of it. Had I stayed with Deloitte, they would have chased me off by my early 60s into mandatory retirement. And I don't know what I would be doing with myself. Right. <laughs> uh, I never took up golf. Right. I, I view golf as Mark Twain did. Golf is a good walk ruined. And if you ever played golf with me, you would never do it a second time. Understood. Understood. So I'm six, I'll be 68 very soon. And I'm thoroughly enjoying what I do. Psychologically, Adam, I'm in my 30s. Nice. I can't get out of my 30s psychologically. I, I don't know if that's good or bad. That's a good thing. <laughs> I am nowhere near psychologically 68. And if the Lord's willing, I'll continue to do this for a long time to come. At least that's what I promise my clients. And I don't make promises lightly. So that's my personal story. And that's why I'm here. And I am truly blessed and honored to be with Salem. I, I couldn't have made a better career decision than I did.
Well, that's a fantastic story. So you had no intention of going into the asset management or the financial space. It kind of called you and then you just responded. That's, that is correct. That is there correct. was a, a lot of deliberation before you made the move. Curious, what were you weighing the pros and cons? Did you have any experience? Uh, or any I was, at the time I left Deloitte, I had been told I would be put up for tax partner within 18 months. And uh, I certainly had every reason to think my chances of becoming tax partner at Deloitte were as good as anyone else's. Mm -hmm. um, but I also knew that doing that would likely mean a geographical move. Okay. Um, and, and that's to be expected when you work with a national and international firm like Deloitte. Right. So we had our first child on the way and I was at the point in my career that I knew I could be moved from office to office, wherever the need was. Right. And I concluded that I didn't want to do that, that I did not want to move a young family from place to place. Yeah. Um, and knowing David as I had and respecting him as much as I did and still do, it was awfully tempting. And I will tell you, that I took a 50% pay cut oh, to wow. come to Salem. So it was not a move without risk. Right. Um, but it was a move that has proven eminently worthwhile. Um, on, the, on the lighter side, what actually provoked the immediate decision was David calling me after we'd been talking about it for several weeks. And he says, hey, we're getting ready to buy a new stationery for the office and we need to know whether your name's going to be on it. That's how it usually works. <laughs> once we buy the stationery, right. we don't waste money. Right. We're not going to buy a new. And I thought, my goodness, these are my kind of folks. That's it. And I said, okay, I love I'll it. join. That's fantastic. So yeah. that, that's the story. That's I love the story. What a great story. So Dale, can you tell us a little about your investment strategy, please? Sure. Uh, Adam, we're the consummate long-term investors. Um, it's, if someone's looking for um, short-term ideas, uh, I'm going to use, for the lack of a better term, day trading. Mm -hmm. We're not day traders. Right. We buy good quality companies. We hold them for a long, long time. We make mistakes. Um, if we were perfect, we would pick 30 or 35 companies. That would be our typical portfolio. And we'd never change them. Right, exactly. It'd be there forever, but exactly. we're not perfect. No one is. Uh, we, do have, uh, we do have portfolio turnover, but in a really active year, it's probably not over 20%. And in many years, it may not exceed five or 10%. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Sure. Pepsi, and I, I don't like talking about a lot of individual stocks, but we've owned Pepsi since 1985. Oh, wow. We were buying it for people in 1985. We're buying it for people in 2000. Microsoft, we bought Microsoft for the first time in October, 1993. We bought Microsoft in 93. We're buying Microsoft in 2020. I wish all of our stocks were like Pepsi and Microsoft. Uh, but occasionally we decide a company has become overpriced and we sell it. Or it's just not performing the way we anticipated and we sell it. 
Um, but we are the consummate long-term investor. We don't get excited when the market goes up, nor do we get depressed when it goes down. No, it makes perfect sense. And then would it be safe to say that you're more of a value-oriented approach? No, we're a, I think a client years ago put it uh, this way. He said, I've been trying to pigeonhole your investment approach. And for a while, I thought it was value. And then I thought it was growth. He says, you're eclectic. Eclectic. Yeah. Uh, and I think that probably best describes us. Now, we are sensitive to what we pay mm -hmm. for stocks. You know, we pay attention to the traditional metrics you look at in buying stocks. But even for a high PE stock, uh, sometimes you can justify that PE based on things outside of price earnings ratio. Right. Um, bottom line, we buy stocks we think will make money. Got it. And no more complicated than that. Makes perfect sense. So Dale, uh, next question would be, how do you handle risk? And what are some mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Uh, that's a good question. I get asked that all the time. Um, it's asset allocation, Adam. Okay. It's absolutely asset allocation. When the typical client comes to us, uh, some do, but most don't. They're turning over a pot of money to us and they're saying, we want you to invest it. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, do you have a thought as to whether you want all stocks or all bonds or a combination? And the answer almost always is you do with it what you think is best. That's why I hired you. Well, then I have to get into questions of what is appropriate for this person. Right. And what is appropriate turns into the concept of asset allocation. What is stocks, what you, how much you have in stocks, bonds, other categories. Mm -hmm. And asset allocation is based primarily on two very large factors, time horizon, mm -hmm. risk tolerance. Okay. Time horizon is how long can you safely invest this money without saying I'm going to have a substantial need for it? A very simple example is you're going to buy a house right. in six months and you intend to put $300,000 of your cash into that house. Mm -hmm. You don't put that, that $300,000 in the stock market. Right. The stock market will be a great investment over a 10, 15, 20 year period of time. But over three months or six months, I don't know any better than you do. Anything can happen. And right? so you have to understand the time horizon for the money being invested. And that's where we help people by asking questions. And sometimes the answers you get aren't really the answer. And right. so you kind of have to probe around the edges to figure out what is the answer to this question. Now, once you have time horizon correct, you have to then evaluate risk tolerance. And someone could have an appropriate horizon for their money, but they lack the psychological risk tolerance. Huge. And I have told people for the better part of 30 years, I've suggested to them that, and, and I guess this was 20, 25 years ago, if you get up in the morning, 
you run to get the newspaper, you go to the financial pages and you find out your stocks didn't do so well yesterday and that ruins your day, then you probably <laughs> shouldn't be investing in stocks. Or if you have this feeling, I've got to get out. Right. Now today, you don't have to wait for the morning newspaper. You can ruin your life in real time by simply turning on the computer and seeing how things are going. Right. And I, I freely suggest to people that life is short. You do not want to spend your time worrying about what the stock market is doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And if that's truly going to fret you, you probably shouldn't do it. But fortunately, um, the clients that we have, if they don't have that understanding immediately, they quickly gain it. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, earlier this year, when the market tumbled so badly because of COVID, mm -hmm. I had very few people call me Good. and ask me about it. Very few people. Why? Because they've been through it before. They've right. seen the ups, they've seen the downs. Right. And we always must remember, there has never been a downturn that wasn't recovered or we wouldn't have been at an all-time high near the end of August and not that far from an all-time high today. Right. So the mistakes people make would be they get their asset allocation incorrect mm -hmm. because they get their time horizon or risk tolerance incorrect. And that encourages them to take action that they otherwise shouldn't take. At the wrong times, right? <laughs> oh yes, invariably at the wrong time. Oh, that's great. That's a really good piece of advice. So as far as, um, I mean, you shared a lot of really good wisdom with us. What are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, it's along the same lines of what I just said. If, if you're doing this for the right reason, it works. Mm -hmm. I could refer you to clients that I've been working for for 30 years or more. They tell you it works. Right. There are going to be periods of time of disappointment, periods of time in which you really feel good. But over the right period, it works. You just have to be willing to suffer the ups and downs of the market. And for goodness sakes, don't try to time the market. Don't think you can figure out the near-term direction of the market. So that, I think that's the most significant lesson that have, has been imprinted on me over all of these years, is that if you're doing it for the right reason, it works. I and I don't it. think it's any more complicated than that. No, that's really, really good advice. So I have a question as far as how you learned that was since you don't have a, you didn't at the time have a financial background when you joined Salem, was that the, the methodology they followed or did you have a proclivity to that? Or how did you come across that nugget of wisdom? Uh, well, that's been the strategy of Salem okay. for our entire 40 years of existence. When I joined Salem, I recognized there were some very, very bright people here. Okay. And my father always said, son, try to associate yourself with bright people. 
because you can learn from them. Great advice. And after getting to know the folks at Salem, I said, these are, these are smart people. Right. I can learn from them. Right. And I have. So, you know, I came in, I didn't walk into a firm that was a market type timing firm or day traders. We were long-term investors from day one. Um, it made sense to me. I went through all of the study for the CFA exam. And I'll tell you, having taken the CPA exam, the bar exam, uh, in my experience, the CFA exam was tougher than the bar exam and it ranked up there with the C CPA exam. Right. But in doing the preparation for that exam, the theory and the concept of long-term investing was really uh, emphasized. Mm -hmm. And so with the study and with the, the instruction from my, the folks here at Salem, that's certainly the investment philosophy that I quickly adopted and I have followed for a long time and I can see very little chance of me altering that philosophy going forward. That makes perfect sense. So a lot of people, they'll say, you know, values like beauty where it's in the eye of the beholder. How do you determine value in a company without going too, too specific, but just in general, you, you mentioned the PE ratio. Are there other metrics you use? Do you use trailing PE or forward PE? Or if you could speak to that a little bit, we'd appreciate it. PE is just one. You look at, um, you can look at growth rates. You know, if a company's growing its earnings at 30% a year, and trading at a 30 or 40 PE, that's probably acceptable. If a company's not growing its earnings, um, then it's going to justify a much lower PE. Uh, you can look at book value, uh, but don't try to value Microsoft, for instance, off book value. Right. You can look at uh, liquidity in the company, like cash, you can you know, look at the cash Apple is holding. Um, so there are a lot of things that you can look at uh, numerically, mm -hmm. PE, growth rates, asset liability ratios, debt ratios, you can do all of that. But Adam, there is also an artistic element to this. Agreed. And that's what the guys at Salem expressed to me. And it's so true. The artistic aspect is not looking necessarily at today's numbers, but attempting to determine where are we going to be five years from now? Mm -hmm. Because today's numbers might not justify the investment decision, but if you can somehow look into the future and determine where we're going to be, then you might make a positive investment decision on that name. Right. Um, and, you know, you, you, you have to have some of both. You have to have some of the quantitative analysis, but then you have to toss in what I call the artistic. Yeah. And it's a combination of all of those. And in the end, you just hope you get it right. That's it. <laughs> That's great. So um, any other timeless mistakes you see people make that you haven't already mentioned? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and the most common is market timing. Mm -hmm. You know, I have I've said a couple of times that 
I'm not capable of that. I don't think anyone is. Uh, but sometimes individuals think they are, and occasionally they get it right. Adam, if you ever hear anyone say, I I've never been successful in the stock market, you're likely talking to a market timer. Got it. Because they've never stayed with it. They've never adopted a long-term approach to investing. And so the most frequent mistake I see would be people who think they know what the market's going to do tomorrow or next week and they invest accordingly. Uh, I'm gonna give you a good example. And it's a recent example, it's this year. From the middle of February, I think from February 18th to March 23rd, the Dow Jones average fell 38%. Obvious reasons, COVID. Right. Um, I'm sure the NASDAQ and S&P fell similarly. Hypothetically, suppose someone on March 22nd said, I can't take it anymore. I don't know where this is going. Uh, the market's going to continue to fall, get me out. So they got out on March 22nd because of COVID. When would they have gotten back in? <laughs> the next day. Look, the COVID numbers were worse in March. They were worse in, worse in August than they were in March. Actually, a little worse now than they were two or three weeks ago because right. it was a winter. Right. But if you got out of the market because of COVID in March, you never would have gotten back in and you would have missed a 50% move to the upside and you can't miss moves like that Understood. and be successful. Understood. No, so, perfect sense. And then the other mistake is, and I've seen this in a few instances over the years, and it's a truism, it's an old adage, but it's true. If something seems too good to be true, then it's likely not true. Right. And I won't go into a couple of instances that I've seen of that, but just always remember, and this is true in life, not just in investing. If it's too good, if it seems too good to be true, that's probably the case. Understood. No, that's really good advice. So Dale, I, I also, what you're saying to me resonates very well with the whole artistic side of it. I like to say, you know, investing is more of an art than a science, but, you know, the qualitative and quantitative side and so on, discretionary, systematic, so on and so forth. Um, I'm also very big on the psychology of investors and psychology of, of people in general. It's one of my passions behind markets. Um, can you speak a little bit to investor psychology and uh, what makes people tick and mistakes they make and things of that nature? The good and the bad to both sides? Well, the bottom line is everyone wants to be successful when they're investing. Um, and I think that, again, if people are doing it for the right reason, they're going to be rewarded. And once they see that reward, it encourages them to stay the course. Got it. Even when you have instances like I just described earlier this year. Right. So I don't, I don't think that it's any more, you know, for someone to be appropriately motivated, I don't think it's any more than that. If it's, if it's someone who, if someone needs motivation by making short-term profits, then we're talking about greed, not investing. And so I think 
the positive motivational factors would be you do it for the right reason. You see that it works and you continue to do it. And then you, you encourage your children to do it. I'm working for grandchildren now. Nice. And in one case, a very young great-grandchild. Wow, because each generation sees that it works mm -hmm. and they encourage the next generation to do it. That's how you accumulate generational wealth. Right. You know, negative psychology, uh, I don't, I, 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 the best I can tell you is folks who have the negative psychology aren't doing it for the right reason. They're doing it for the wrong reason, probably should have never done it in the first place. No, that's great advice. And then um, you say, what, how old were you when you joined Salem, approximately? 1988, so I was 35. 35, so my question was, if you can go back and tell your 30-year-old self any piece of advice, what would it be? So if you, know, if you can go back, what would that be? Um, I would tell my 30-year-old self to start investing. Mm earlier. The problem was that at age 30, I didn't really have any money to invest. Right. <laughs> so, Understood. you know, I remember in 1980, mm -hmm. I guess it was 1980, money market yields were 16 percent. Yes, of course, yes. inflation was running 18 or 19 percent. You know, this was for a brief period of time. Mm -hmm. Of course, I didn't have any money to invest at 16 percent. My first home mortgage was 12%. Wow. Now, 12, at 12%, money doesn't go very far. Right. Um, but the advice that I would give younger people that I wish I'd had, but I'm not sure I could have taken advantage of it had I had the, the advice, um, is start investing early. If you have the opportunity to participate, for instance, in a 401k, particularly with an employer match, mm -hmm. do it. It's free money. If an employer is matching you 50 right. cents on the dollar, you've just made 50% without ever taking one scintilla of risk. It's free so money. So do it. Yes. Then in retirement plans, and you're young, theoretically, you're not going to be using this money for many, many years, mm -hmm. invest it in equities, invest it in stocks, give it the best chance to grow. Adam, I'm again, I wanna be 68 soon. All of my retirement money, all of my retirement money is in stocks. Yeah, mine is well. understood, yeah. And now I've, I've got funds outside of that and I'm not quite as growth oriented there, but I'm pretty darn growth oriented. But retirement money for a young person should be in stocks. Um, give you an example. I've passed this advice along to my children. They're very early 30s now, and they, they have followed this. Recently, my daughter mm -hmm. decided she and her husband and two granddaughters were going to change houses. So she has bought another house. She's selling hers. And she's looking at sources of funding. And so I say, sweetheart, um, you know, you've got your investment account. You can always pull money out of the investment account to use on the purchase. Right. She looks at me and says, Daddy, 
I can get a mortgage at two and five eighths. Now, can you imagine two and five eighths on a 30 year mortgage? Unbelievable. I can get a mortgage at two and five eighths. Can't you do better than two and five eighths? That's it. (laughs) (laughs) And the story. (laughs) I guess Mm -hmm. that it stuck with her. Right. Uh, And she is an investor. My son's an investor. Uh, My granddaughters will be investors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that, if, you ask, if you're asking me what would I have personally done differently, I would have gotten started earlier in life to the extent I could have. Would I have done anything different here at Salem Investment Counselors? Would Salem Investment Counselors as an entity have done anything differently? I don't think so. I truly, Adam, think we have done this the way it should have been done. Right. And uh, I'm not going to even attempt to go back and second guess any things that we've done because I'm just so confident that we have done what we're supposed to do the way we're supposed to do it. Yeah, it's very rewarding. So, Dale, we both um, started from scratch or near scratch, and what your your advice is resonates very, very well on, on a personal level to me, and also um, from a, I guess, a systematic standpoint. There's a lot of people that are getting started that don't have a lot of money. So, if you go back and you could give somebody advice with, let's say, a hundred thousand or fifty thousand or ten thousand dollars to grow the wealth, besides having a long term view and investing in equities. Is there any other um, advice you would share with somebody who's getting started with a smaller amount of money? Or would it be the well, same? Well, I, I think it would largely be the same thing, Adam. Right. Um, you know, I tell folks whether you're investing 1 million or 100,000, it's essentially the same process. You right. just use bigger or smaller numbers. Another zero, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I, I would emphasize for folks who are starting off, with modest sums of money, however you define that. Modest could be $1,000 for some people. I remember dating my wife, asking her many, many years ago about some purchase she was going to make. And um, I was questioning the cost. You know, this, you know, we're early 20s. And I said, do you really have the money to afford this? And she looks at me and she says, I've got almost $500. Well, $500, I guess, was a lot to a 20-some-year-old. And right. uh, as my father told me in the car business, he said, people expect the same thing, whether the car cost $500 or $5,000. Right. And so in our business, people expect the same thing, whether they are investing millions or tens of thousands. That's great advice. Um, but I would suggest to anyone, at any level of investment. Understand what you're doing. Understand your time horizon. Understand your psychological risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. If your horizon is correct, you should invest it for growth, which means if not all stocks, predominantly stocks. Um, Young people, retirement money, as I said earlier, should be all should be all inequities. Got it. Um, you've you got to get started. But once you get started, uh, you stay the course. Stay the course yeah. And I'll guarantee you, 
if you stay the course, you look back on it when you're my age, Fantastic. and you say, gosh, it worked, it worked. No, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Dale, I can't thank you enough for all the time. I guess the final question is, um, on or off Wall Street, what's the best piece of advice you'd like to share with us as a, just stay the course and have a long-term view or is there anything specific? Well, from, from an invest, investing point of view, yes. Stay the course. Um, if you're asking about advice outside of investing, Absolutely. <laughs> More generic. Doors wide open. Anywhere you want to go. Uh, look, I might would have answered this differently 40 years ago. But having the life experience, and I hope there's still a lot to put a lot of experience coming. Enjoy life. Mm -hmm. Don't don't let economics control your life economics are necessary mm -hmm. but don't let economics drive your day-to-day -day life if mm -hmm. you can avoid it um, i think that people who take a narrow view of you know i i ask um sometimes people talk about success right. what is success and in our business, a lot of times people, I think, make the mistake of measuring success by dollars and cents. Mm -hmm. And I truly think that is a mistake. I like to think of a very dear friend of mine that I started out with in kindergarten. And he was my roommate in Chapel Hill for four years. And I, of course, have kept up with him. He's one of the most successful people that I've ever known. And I'm not talking about economics. Right. He does fine. But that's not what drives him. Today, he is one of the astronomers that manages the Hubble telescope. Wow. And that is exactly what he wanted to do in life. Right. So my friend Ray is doing exactly what he wanted to do. Right. And in my view, there's no one more successful than Ray. Right. And it has nothing to do with economics. Right. So that would be my advice. Economics are important. We have to have economics to get by. But try not to let it become the most important thing in your life. Yeah, don't let it dominate you. Right. Understand. Right. This has been absolutely fantastic, Dale. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Adam. I'll, I'll be glad to come back anytime. You just let me know if you don't mind seeing an old face. I love having you on, Dale. We'll definitely bring you on again and again and again. Okay. <laughs> Thank you kindly. Okay. All right. Thank you. Take you take care. Bye.